Chapter 4, Pulmonology, Topic 8, Restrictive Lung Disease. Today we'll start by discussing interstitial lung disease, a group of conditions that cause inflammation and fibrosis of the alveolar walls, resulting in impaired gas exchange. There are many potential causes of interstitial lung disease. It can be idiopathic, meaning the cause is unknown. Pneumoconiosis, which is caused by exposure to non-organic dust matter, such as in coal mining, silicosis, asbestosis, and beryliosis, can also lead to interstitial lung disease. Other causes include hypersensitivity pneumonitis due to exposure to organic dust matter, certain infections like tuberculosis or systemic mycoses, certain drugs like methotrexate, bleomycin, busulfan, amiodarone, nitrofurantoin, autoimmune diseases, granulomatous-associated conditions, pulmonary alveolar proteinosis, radiation, smoke inhalation, and gastric aspiration, an extensive list to say the least. Signs and symptoms of interstitial lung disease include chronic worsening dyspnea or shortness of breath, persistent non-productive cough, tachypnea or rapid breathing, cyanosis or bluish discoloration of the skin, clubbing of the fingers and toes, and the presence of crackles, often referred to as Velcro rails on auscultation. Diagnosing interstitial lung disease often involves ruling out other conditions, hence it is considered a diagnosis of exclusion. High-resolution CT scans and sometimes biopsy are used to determine the specific cause. Pulmonary function tests typically show a restrictive lung disease pattern and a low diffusing capacity of the lung for carbon monoxide, or DLCO. Management of interstitial lung disease is generally symptomatic and is often initiated in late-stage disease due to its poor prognosis. This can involve removal of the causative agent if identified glucocorticoids and potentially immunosuppressants like azathioprine or mycophenolate may be used. Antifibrotic agents like perfenidone have shown early results in slowing down disease progression by down-regulating the production of growth factors and procollagen. In severe cases, a lung transplant may be considered. Continuing our discussion on interstitial lung diseases, Specifically, we're going to dive into some of the many causes and their key features. Let's start with hypersensitivity pneumonitis. This condition is typically caused by inhalation of organic antigens, such as mold, bird droppings, or air conditioners. It can present similarly to pneumonia with symptoms like fevers, chills, and pulmonary infiltrates. Symptoms often improve after the removal of the causative antigen. This condition is a combination of type 3 and type 4 hypersensitivity reactions. Serology may show immunoglobulin G and immunoglobulin A antibodies against the inhaled antigen. Next, we have good pasture syndrome. This is a type 2 hypersensitivity reaction where antibodies target the glomerular basement membranes, which are present in the alveoli and glomerulus. Patients may present with pulmonary symptoms like cough, dyspnea, and hemoptysis, as well as renal symptoms like hematuria, renal failure, and glomerulonephritis. Serology often reveals anti-GBM antibodies. Treatment usually involves plasmapheresis, along with glucocorticoids and immunosuppressants. Langerhans cell histiocytosis is another cause of interstitial lung disease and is common in cigarette smokers. This condition can present with a variety of symptoms, including punched-out lytic bone lesions, brownish-purple papules, lymphadenopathy, hepatosplenomegaly, pneumothorax, diabetes insipidus, and other endocrinopathies. Treatment typically involves steroids and, in some cases, other chemotherapeutic agents. Pulmonary alveolar proteinosis is characterized by the accumulation of proteinaceous surfactant material in the alveoli. This happens due to decreased clearance secondary to disruption of granulocyte macrophage colony-stimulating factor, 
GMCSF signaling. Symptoms include a cough with gelatinous chunky sputum, dyspnea on exertion, fever, and weight loss. Chest x-rays often show bilateral alveolar opacities in a bat wing distribution. Treatment involves lung lavage and granulocyte colony stimulating factor. The use of glucocorticoids is generally avoided. Lastly, radiation exposure, specifically post-thoracic radiation, can cause interstitial lung disease. This is especially common in patients who have had radiation treatment for lung, breast, or thyroid cancer. Risk factors for development include the volume of irradiated lung, the dose of radiation, and the method of radiation delivery. Acute symptoms can develop within 4 to 12 weeks, while late-stage symptoms can develop up to one year later. On a chest X-ray, a straight-line effect, which does not follow normal anatomic boundaries and instead follows the outline of the radiation port, is diagnostic. Let's continue our discussion on interstitial lung diseases, specifically looking at different types of pneumoconiosis. Let's start with asbestosis. Risk factors include occupations such as shipyard workers, plumbers, insulators, and pipe fitters. Asbestosis primarily affects the lower lung lobes and can lead to pleural plaques. A key diagnostic feature is the presence of ferruginous bodies, which are asbestos fibers that resemble dumbbells. There's also an increased risk of bronchogenic carcinoma and mesothelioma. Next, co-workers pneumoconiosis, or CWP. As the name suggests, this condition is a risk for coal miners. In its simple form, CWP presents with multiple small lung nodules involving the upper lobes. If it becomes complicated, it can lead to multiple coalesced lung nodules larger than one centimeter, a condition known as progressive massive fibrosis. An interesting association is Kaplan syndrome, which is rheumatoid arthritis with interstitial lung disease. Silicosis is another form of pneumoconiosis, and the risk factors include sandblasting and quarry mining. Key features include eggshell calcifications and lung nodules primarily involving the upper lobes. Patients with silicosis have an increased risk of pulmonary tuberculosis due to interference with macrophage phagocytosis. Lastly, we have beryliosis, which is associated with occupations such as manufacturing in aerospace, electronics, ceramics, fluorescent bulbs, and dental industries. A chest x-ray might show hyalur adenopathy similar to sarcoidosis, and a biopsy can reveal non-caseating granulomas. This condition often responds well to steroids. Next, we'll discuss sarcoidosis. Sarcoidosis typically affects females between 20 to 40 years old and is more common in the African-American population. Many patients are asymptomatic, but symptoms can vary widely depending on the organs involved. Pulmonary symptoms include dyspnea on exertion, fine rails, and respiratory distress. Extrapulmonary manifestations are diverse. In the head, eyes, ears, nose, and throat area, patients may present with parotid gland enlargement, uveitis, and iritis. Neurological manifestations include facial nerve palsy, hydrocephalus, lymphocytic meningitis, and Guillain-Barre syndrome. Dermatologic symptoms include lupus perneo, which presents as reddish-purple cutaneous lesions involving the cheeks, nose, lips, and ears, and erythema nodosum. Cardiac symptoms can include arrhythmias, such as complete AV block, restrictive cardiomyopathy, and valvular dysfunction. Other symptoms can include hepatosplenomegaly, arthritis, interstitial nephritis, and nephrolithiasis secondary to hypercalcemia. Endocrine issues such as hypopituitarism and adrenal insufficiency can occur due to granulomatous infiltration. Two associated syndromes are Herfurt syndrome, also known as uveoparotid fever, which includes parotid enlargement and uveitis, and Lofgren syndrome, a form of acute sarcoidosis which presents with arthritis, erythema nodosum, and hyaluradenopathy. 
In terms of diagnostics, a chest X-ray often reveals bilateral hilar adenopathy. Other supporting features may include pulmonary hypertension and elevated ACE levels. A biopsy showing non-cassiating granulomas is also indicative of sarcoidosis. As an aside, chest X-ray findings can be classified in stages depending on the imaging manifestations. Stage 0 is asymptomatic with clear imaging results. Stage 1 involves bilateral hilar adenopathy. Stage 2 encompasses both adenopathy and parenchymal involvement. Stage 3 is characterized by diffuse parenchymal infiltrates. Finally, stage 4 signifies pulmonary fibrosis and cavitation. Management of sarcoidosis primarily involves the use of prednisone. The last disorder in this section is obesity hypoventilation syndrome. The pathophysiology of OHS involves individuals with massive obesity experiencing a type of restrictive lung disease. This is because the excessive weight on the thorax prevents full lung expansion, which in turn impairs the ability to expel carbon dioxide. Symptoms of OHS can include respiratory distress, decreased breath sounds, and dyspnea on exertion. For diagnostics, an arterial blood gas test can show chronic hypercapnia with metabolic compensation. Pulmonary function tests typically reveal a pattern consistent with restrictive lung disease. As for management, the primary recommendation is weight loss. This can be achieved through a combination of dietary changes, increased physical activity, and in some cases, bariatric surgery.